I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2006. It concerns the important topic of depression among teenagers. It is clear that the problem has grown only worse since we recorded this conversation. According to the Pew Research Center, in 2017, 13% of teens said that they had experienced at least one major depressive episode during the previous year, including one out of five teenage girls. Those numbers represent an increase of 59% over 10 years earlier. Clearly, this problem is not going away. So here is this important conversation with Dr. Norman Berlinger from 2006. Depression. It is something we hear a lot about but are still grappling to really understand. It seems as though depression is becoming a more and more uh, of a problem that more and more people confront. And in particular, we hear now more and more about young people that are confronting depression. And depression is also something which, as uh, the book we talk about today uh, explores, is something that is not easily or immediately detectable, and that sometimes depression can really look like something else entirely different. Uh, Our guest for this portion of the morning show has been down this difficult road. Dr. Norman Berlinger uh, is uh, a bioethicist uh, and a pathologist, uh, a surgeon and uh, a writer, and also the father of a son who grappled with very serious depression. And uh, Dr. Norman T. Berlinger has written a book now which uh, can be of enormous help to, uh, to anyone who might find themselves in this Uh, inenviable situation. The book is called Rescuing Your Teenager from Depression, 10 Parental Partnering Partnering Strategies to Unmask Hidden Depression, Share the Care with Professionals, to Make Your Home a Healing Place, to Reduce the Risk of Recurrence. And at the top of the cover of the book, this important information, one in eight teens is depressed and most are undiagnosed. So we're talking about something uh, of critical importance today. The book, by the way, is published by Harper Resource, an imprint of HarperCollins. Dr. Norman T. Berlinger, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Good morning from Minneapolis. Thank you for having me. We are really glad that uh, you can join us, and I certainly am grateful to you for, uh, for writing this uh, particular book. Well, thank you for saying so. Um, one of the things that is really interesting... Uh, and it is borne out in the story of your son, uh, Eric is his name, right? Right. Um, is, uh, right off the bat, the very first sentence of the book when you say that depression is one of the biggest medical imposters of them all. Explain us uh, to us a little further uh, why that is so or how that is so, I guess is what I'm really asking. Depression in, uh, in adolescents and teenagers always seems to be something of a different disease than depression in adults. And the first way it's different is the way it manifests itself. When we think of a depressed adult, we think of someone who's sad, who's moping around, who has his or her head in one's hands, you know. Uh, That's only true half the time for a teenager. The other half of the time, they don't look sad, they don't mope. Uh, On the contrary, they become angry or hostile, belligerent, or even rebellious. And there's a reason for this curious uh, way they manifest their disease, Teenagers, despite the fact we want to make them sophisticated, are immature thinkers. When these strange emotions occur inside of them, they don't know what to make of them. As a consequence, they become angry instead, or they become hostile. 
I think the the way to to visualize that is the typical Hollywood scene where a man becomes a very uh, sad at a catastrophe, and as an expression of his sadness, he takes his fist and hits a wall. He <clears throat> manifests his sadness as anger. Teenagers do that half the time. As a consequence, the depression is often missed. We consider them to be obnoxious individuals rather than emotionally ill individuals. Hmm. Yeah, at one point you say bad or mad may actually mean sad. Exactly. That's an adage that's taught to medical students. I went to the University of Michigan Medical School. That's one of the first things I learned, hmm. that teenage depression may, mani- may manifest itself as a bad or a mad teenager, not a sad one. Hmm. You dedicate the book uh, to your son, Eric. You say, he has made me wiser with his struggle. He has made me braver with his energy and his successes. Yes. You tell us that he is now uh, in college and doing well, and as a, as a youngster, he did very, very well, and then things really went seriously amiss uh, at some point uh, during high school. Tell us a little bit more about uh, how things deteriorated for your son, Eric. We were blessed with a marvelous son. Uh, he was long overdue. Uh, after a period of infertility, my wife and I you know, finally had him, and he was the kind and charming son that every parent said they would like to have except when he became a sophomore in high school, he became angry and belligerent and hostile. In fact, he was, we thought there was an evil person had overtaken Eric, that his evil twin had shown up. And it took me a while. I missed the diagnosis, too. It took me a while to realize that bad or, or mad may actually mean sad. It didn't apply to my son, of course. I didn't want to believe that. I was reluctant to believe he was depressed, but indeed that's what happened. Well, and what's what's especially striking is when we read your description of what he was like before all of this developed, you, you, you talk about what a wonderful kid he was, and in particular, how exceptionally kind he was, exactly. which had to make all of this so uh, incredibly uh, bewildering for you. Oh, he had my wife in tears. He would, he would pick fights with her in the car, for instance. She would drive him to school before he had a driver's license, and she might uh, have an eat-on-the-run breakfast in the car, you know, if she dropped several seeds on the floor mat, that would be enough to set him off, and he would pounce on her for the 20-minute drive mercilessly and have her in tears by the time uh, they arrived at school. And they had an excellent relationship and, of course, still do. But it was mysterious behavior. Mm. You say that at one point you came to believe or realize that he was depressed, not really out of any sort of careful medical diagnosis by 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 you or, or anyone else, you say it was really a, a matter uh, as much of intuition as anything. Well, it, it was. You know, the point of it is you go through all the things in your mind to explain the belligerent behavior, and nothing seems to fit. And then uh, in a heated moment, you blurt that out. I think there was more to it than that. I think it was more than intuition. I think I went through what most parents go through who suspect that their teenager might be depressed, is that a parent is reluctant to admit it. They hate to admit their child is depressed because maybe it means... They failed in their parenting skills. They're reluctant uh, to admit it because they know they've got work to do now and they have to, might, might have to alter their own schedule. They're guilty to admit it because they feel they passed along some bad genes. Uh, I think it was just as much reluctance as it was intuition. Hmm. Let me stop you for just a moment and, and, and backtrack to something else which you say in the introduction, which is that this book celebrates the parent. And indeed, this is a book which... Uh, includes the parent in a way that, that I haven't ever seen in, in, in another book qu- 
quite like this. First of all, that's such intriguing language. Explain that to us, how this book can celebrate the parent. Thank you for bringing that up. That's why I wrote the book, to uh, give you a little bit of a preamble. You know, the, the parent was always vilified. Uh, for a hundred years, we heard about the pathologic family. Uh, that's a sad misconception fostered by a few researchers, you know. The point of it is, is that in certain emotional illnesses of teenagers, the parent turns out to be an underutilized resource. If I can give you one example, uh, anorexia nervosa strikes a lot of girls, perhaps 6 to 10% of them. The most effective treatment for anorexia nervosa was devised at Maudsley Hospital in London. What it does, it involves the parent intimately. And when the parent is intimately involved in the treatment of their son or daughter's anorexia nervosa, the cure rate is the highest and the long-term remission rate is the highest. The parent has been an underutilized resource in the treatment of that emotional illness. The same is coming true now for depression. A uh, parent has certain powers, uh, and as a consequence, the parent can be a resource that can, that can partner with the therapist and bring about a faster recovery and a longer-lasting recovery. We're speaking with Dr. Norman Berlinger. His book is called Rescuing Your Teenager from Depression. Uh, in in the immediate wake of of your realization that uh, that your son Eric was uh, was actually grappling with with depression, uh, you discovered what, of course, a lot of other parents discover who are in the same boat, namely that help is not at all easy to find. Correct. I was you know I was most disappointed. I was part of the medical establishment in Minneapolis, and of course I knew more of the names and more of the phone numbers than the average parent. I thought it would be no difficulty to find a therapist for my son. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. There are very few therapists who are qualified to treat adolescents or who specialize in, the, in treating adolescents. Uh, as a consequence, the wait is very long. In the meantime, the child is suffering. In fact, in the meantime, the child might even be at risk for suicide. Hmm. You say that depression... Um that, that a person who is suffering de- some depression desperately needs a helpmate, which is uh, also kind of an interesting choice of, of, of language. I mean, we, we, we tend to hear that in, in wedding ceremonies, and we don't hear that much in the course of our, of our regular everyday lives. Tell us why helpmate was the word you chose. Well, you know, a popular misconception is that depression is nothing more than a bad case of the blues or an extreme sadness. Sadness is, not, is, is indeed part of depression, but the crux of depression is two particularly uh, bad qualities. One is a sense of worthlessness. I have no value as a human being to my parents or to my friends or my coaches. The second component of depression is hopelessness. There is no one who has any power to get me out of this fix, and teenagers especially feel powerless. So the point of it is hopelessness and worthlessness need sounding boards. They need people to say, look, you're thinking incorrectly. There's lots of evidence to the contrary that you have value as a person. I'm going to show you what that is. And more than that, since teenagers especially feel powerless and their hopelessness is especially bad, they need to know that someone of power, like a parent, has been recruited into their fight. Hmm. You called uh, yourself, uh, for Eric, his therapist at home. Right. And, and you didn't just think of yourself that way or share that with your wife, but you shared this with Eric, if I remember correctly. Oh, exactly. I told, I told Eric we're having trouble finding a therapist, and I know you feel bad in the meantime. 
I said, second of all, is that, you know, we've got to do something at home because, because the weight that we're experiencing now could be dangerous. But I called myself a therapist at home. But I want to make sure that he knew I was not undermining the authority of the therapist he eventually would have. And so I called myself a therapist at home to get the ball rolling. I called myself a therapist at home so that he knew somebody else of power had been recruited into his fight formally. Uh, you say that um, that for Eric, home was a hideout. Right. And I think that really brings up a very interesting and thorny dilemma uh, in terms of, of, of what a depressed person feels they need and what, in fact, they really do need in order to, to give them the most kind of beneficial help. Well, you know, I... I I wrote a sentence in my book on several occasions because I'm a firm believer in it. It's not my sentence. It's a sentence from William Butler Yeats. And the, the sentence I wrote is, the center must hold. In all this time of turmoil, if the depressed person doesn't feel that there's a place that's solid, a safe place of high ground, then they truly feel hopeless. He knew that this was his refuge and that any time he felt bad, he could come here and we would talk or we would cry or do whatever was necessary. Uh, was it, is, is it possible, or was it possible sometimes for that, for your home to become an escape exactly. in a way that, that was not, not ultimately health, healthy? Right. Precisely. It's a double-edged sword. The depressed person will withdraw from friends and from family and erect this self-imposed cell of solitary confinement around himself or around herself, and so the problem is his refuge also became a way of hiding out. I knew that. I knew that, that I was causing that problem. And I frankly admitted to myself the problem was being caused, but I would deal with that later on because the refuge was more important. Hmm. In fact, our, our son even said that. He said, I always had a safe place to go to. You said at one point, and I really wonder what you mean, um, you said that uh, you were trying to keep such careful track of just what exactly was going on with Eric and the, the efforts which you were doing to try to make him feel better. And then you say, I kept an insomnia watch and I kept a suicide watch. Right. What exactly do you mean by that? Uh, one of the symptoms that, uh, that depression causes is sleep disturbance. It can cause a hypersomnia where the depressed person withdraws from the world so much that he or she sleeps too much. And quite the opposite, it can cause insomnia, where the person is awake all night. Uh, you know full well that uh, an unpaid bill at 2 o'clock in the afternoon is nothing but a nuisance. An unpaid bill at 2 o'clock in the morning is a worry that perhaps you're going to wind up in court or have your car repossessed. Night changes everything. Uh, in fact, uh, authors have written that demons enjoy the ravages of the evening. And so Michael, our son, finally admitted, whom I call Eric in the book, our son finally admitted that the darkest hours of his soul were the darkest hours of the night. And so I watched him at night, and I would try to engage him in conversation, and I'd pull him out of his room at night so that he wouldn't spend this insomniac night of soul-searching. And, of course, the soul-searching was always negative. He found himself to be worthless at 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, of course, that's a time when people might commit suicide. So an insomnia watch is also a suicide watch. 
So they're kind of one and the same. In a they're sense. one and the same. Wow. We spoke earlier of how this book is a celebration of of parents and and and, and of what parents are 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 capable of doing in terms of of, of helping their children. Uh, if they are suffering from something like this. And, of course, that flies in the face of what probably is the initial reaction of most parents, which is that this is something way too strange and way too difficult uh, for, me, for me to deal with. And, uh, and, and you really say that, that that's, that's not right, and that for as intimidating and bewildering as this problem is, in fact, nobody is better equipped to offer meaningful help than the parent for, for a number of different reasons. I did about 100 interviews of parents who had depressed teenagers just to see what they, what they missed, what they found, what their successes and failures were. And during the course of the interviews, it was remarkable that parents would continue to tell me why they, spelt, why they felt especially qualified to be a helpmate. And it's really quite, it's really quite amazing. Uh, I got responses such as, as a parent, there is no other person who is as sensitive to the development of the teen's interior life. Uh, they would say that, uh, that I, as a parent, I'm the primary generator of a teen's self-esteem. And when she's going through this episode of worthlessness, I can generate self-esteem for her better than anybody. Uh, parents would say that they're the ultimate reality check. Teens, of course, are unsophisticated thinkers. And a parent can always tell a teenager, look, this is not right. What you are believing is a cognitive distortion. Um, a parent is a guardian, a guardian of the teen's biography. Uh, depressed teens don't know where they're going. They don't know if they're going to live to be 21. They don't, they don't know if they're going to be happy. They don't know if they're going to be able to go canoeing. They don't know if they're ever going to get married. The outcome always seems uncertain. But the parent who's the guardian of the teen's biography can reassure him or her that things are going to be okay. And, of course, a parent always has 24-7 access to the teenager. No therapist in a, does. I think it was really a, a, a wonderful insight also shared when, we, when you said that in the face of all that is so uh, unpleasant about this kind of experience, I mean, the way in which the family life and personal life and professional life just get turned on their ear, when, when something like this occurs, and especially when it's as serious a situation as this. You said, though, that a number of the parents you talked to felt that it was a privilege to be allowed the most intimate kind of participation in their teen's interior life. I mean, that is really a striking thing uh, when, when on the surface, of course, this, this could not be pleasant or fun in, in any way, shape, or form. Many of these parents, in fact, felt like it was uh, a, a very meaningful experience for them to try to help their children. That was surprising, yes. I heard that time after time. In fact, I heard that more often from the parents who had the worst time of it, the parents who were the most exhausted or the most distracted, or perhaps who had the teenager who might have been the most belligerent. Uh, it was actually a time uh, to get close, uh, watch their teen actually mature emotionally through the episode, uh, perhaps even watch the teen develop more empathy, and then rekindle the relationship later on, and oftentimes the relationship became even stronger. That was certainly the case with my wife, with Eric's mother. Hmm. When we uh, look at this uh, array of various 
parental powers, as you call them, you were you were telling us most of them just just a little bit ago that that the parents have sort of unique abilities or, or, or resources, emotional resources to bring to bear in trying to help help a child with with depression. As I read these, I also think to myself, boy, if if I were soon to become a parent, I would want to really make sure that I was really living out all of these things. Oh, I, I think so. I was surprised to compile that list, too. As I told you, the parents uh, that I talked to and interviewed all had depressed children. I think they didn't realize they had these powers until they got through the episode, and they said to, my, to themselves, my goodness, this is what I did, and they would share that with me. And I think it was a sense, it was a journey of discovery for them, too, to, to realize that they could celebrate their own abilities as a parent. Hmm. It's intriguing how you set up a scenario in which the the depressed teen would have preferably a partner, a helpmate, probably at least to some extent one parent or the other, not that the other parent, assuming there are two parents in the home, right. not assuming that the other parent plays no role, but 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 one of the parents needs to take the primary role. First, tell us why you believe that. Well, sometimes it happens uh, by default. Uh, many of the parents I talked to would confide in me that oftentimes one parent was vilified, and the relationship between that parent and the teen was especially bad. Uh, that certainly was the case in, in my house. For some reason, uh, Eric decided to, to pick fights more often with his mother than with me. And so the point of it is that person who's vilified really can't accomplish as much as can the person who's looked upon as being more of a pal or more of a friend or more of a guider. So is, is that kind of the main thrust of trying to figure out who should take this role? Are there, oh, other I things think there, there are other things, too. You know, as I told you, parents are reluctant to admit that their teenager could be depressed because that would be an admission of their own guilt or of their own failure. And a lot of people don't want to admit that so they can't be a helpmate. My own wife, Eric's mother, didn't even use the word depressed in reference to him until several years after uh, this had transpired. Uh, in addition, you have to be a real advocate for your teenager. You have to go to the high school and say, look, my son and my daughter is depressed. He or she's having trouble in school or in athletics. We've got to do something about it. You have to be willing to be an advocate and, of course, have the time available in your schedule to be an advocate. And then, of course, one of the most important things is that teen depression often has part of its cause in family dysfunctions within the home. And so the point of it is if one of the parents is part of that dysfunction, for instance, if one parent has an addiction, that particular parent may not be qualified to be a helpmate because he or she has difficulty dealing with their own addictions. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Norman Berlinger. His book is Rescuing Your Teenager from Depression. It's interesting how uh, you talk not only about uh, a parent being a helpmate with the child suffering from depression. But you uh, point out that there's another way in which one must think in terms of partnership and collaboration, and that is with uh, who might be uh, the therapist outside the home. Exactly. There, there are uh, many people who are now qualified to be mental health uh, therapists. In fact, I think a cover story in Time magazine several weeks ago um, ran with the title, Who Needs Doctors? The point of it was, was that a lot of people who are not MDs are now assuming the role of mental health therapists 
and they're highly qualified. And these include not just MD psychiatrists, but PhD psychologists, uh, social workers, marriage and family therapists. And in fact, there's even a new category of therapist in many states now called a licensed professional counselor. Most of these people go through rigorous training uh, for psychological assessment and psychological therapy. Ones who are not MDs cannot prescribe drugs, but they still can offer the cognitive therapy that the teenager needs so badly. And it would be silly at this time to say that the only person who's qualified would be an MD psychiatrist or a PhD psychologist. These, these ill teenagers are in such need of cognitive therapy that now we have to think very strongly about availing ourselves of these other very well-qualified resources. Hmm. The balance of your book is taken up with 10 different parental strategies, and you are, are very quick right off the bat to say that these aren't quick fixes or, or miracle cures. Um, and, of course, that's what probably parents want more than anything. Um, if, if they aren't that, then, then tell us what, what these are. Uh, if, if they're not quick fixes or miracle cures, how would you describe just overall these 10 strategies? Uh, there is no quick fix to depression. You can ask any adult that, uh, especially for a teenager. I think many researchers in the field feel very strongly now uh, that teenage depression is a different disease than adolescent depression. It, ha- it can be more severe. It can become chronic. And in fact, the recurrence rate for teenage depression is much higher than for adult depression. In fact, 50% of teenagers will experience a recurrence of their depression within five years of the first episode. So as a consequence, the 10 strategies are not a quick fix. It's a long-term game plan. Mm. Uh, most, of course, is always to be alert. You've got to be alert to the disguises. Uh, you have to uh, be alert to the fact that teenage depression might have other comorbid conditions with it. By that I mean the depressed teenager may also be anorexic, may have ADHD, may have obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's another thing that distinguishes teenage depression from adult depression. Adult depression oftentimes does not have the comorbid disorders. You always have to be alert to a suicide risk. Suicide is an impulsive act, and so just because you feel content that there's no risk on Tuesday doesn't mean there won't be a risk on Wednesday because it is an impulsive act and the impulse may, may arise then. You've always got to be alert to the fact that uh, your family physician uh, may be the one who is managing uh, the medicines and you've got to be alert to the side effects and monitor whether your teenager is taking them. Uh, you've got to continue to monitor the family. The family uh, may uh, manifest certain dysfunctions that promote depression and those must indeed be addressed. Hmm. There's a lot to do. Most of the parents I talked to who had depressed teenagers said they were exhausted, and that was the word they used. I bet. Uh, just a quick word about that, and then I, I want to talk about a couple of the things on this list. Uh, first of all, how did, you, how did you find these parents uh, with whom you spoke? And um, tell us a little bit about your overture. I mean, how, <laughs> how, did, you, how did you phrase this invitation, and, and how was that invitation, generally speaking, received? That's a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked that. You know, depression is a highly stigmatized disease. In fact, that's where depression finds its refuge, is in the stigma. So we underdiagnose it and undertreat it. And so the point of it is, is I thought I would have a difficult time finding people with depressed teenagers. I started with my colleagues because, of course, there's a certain um, professional decorum 
where we can talk about each other's family's illness and not feel so threatened. And I found several colleagues who had depressed teenagers. But interestingly enough, I started branching out, and as soon as I would tell people who I thought had a depressed teenager at home that I did, if I would say that first, all of a sudden their, the stigma was gone, and they felt it safe to talk. And all one had to do was admit that you had a depressed teenager, and you find out that there are legions of parents out there in the same position. If I can give you a little anecdote, I even found a parent at Caribou Coffee here in Minneapolis. Caribou Coffee is Minneapolis's equivalent of Starbucks. Right. It's somebody who I would see in line every morning as I was going off to the office. I just knew him from the fact that he bought coffee at Caribou. We got to talking. I told him I was writing a book on teenage depression. Because I had a son who was depressed. All of a sudden he told me he had two children at home who were depressed. And he became one of the people I interviewed. Hmm. As soon as people realize it's safe to talk, they'll talk. And I was going to say, they probably were were uh, incredibly grateful for the opportunity in many respects. But that's the sadness of it all, too, is that parents don't want to share with other parents who are their friends or neighbors that they have a depressed child at home, when perhaps those parents do, and they have great things to pass along. It could be helpers to them. Hmm. We've already talked about how uh, teenage depression often doesn't look like depression on the surface, that one has to kind of see past the disguise and, and, and discard what might be our initial impressions about what's going on. I think one of the most interesting chapters in the book is, is with st- strategy two about add up the clues in which you uh, really point out an array of, of symptoms that can indicate depression, some of which are actually uh, very subtle. I wonder if you would just talk us through uh, some of the most important of these, because this is really where the tire hits the pavement. This is uh, really the, the heart of the matter in terms of determining whether or not this is what's going on. Thank you for bringing that up. I, I interviewed one mother whose son had committed suicide, who had hung himself, and I had asked her, when did you first realize that your son was depressed? And she said when she tried to cut him down Oh my gosh. and do CPR. And she was an attentive mother. The point I'm trying to make is is that the clues can be subtle, as you say. And in a case with a a rebellious or angry teen, it's probably better to overreact than underreact. And that's exactly the the point of it, is the the anger and the hostility and the rebellion might be the first tip-off. And 50% of depressed teenagers, they look angry. Um, The point of it is, is we all look angry from time to time. And teenagers are, are, are thought to be traditionally in a time of turmoil. Sadly, that's, uh, that's a misconception that was fostered by some psychologists who now admit their error. And in fact, 85% of, teen, of, of teenagers make a smooth transition from childhood to adulthood. But it's the other 15% that don't. And these people aren't just angry. They're angry for at least two weeks. Or they're mm. hostile for at least two weeks. Every day for two weeks. And more than that, their anger or their hostility interferes with their jobs. And a teenager's jobs are to go to school and interact with his or her peers. So if the teenager is angry or hostile every day for more than two weeks, and if it's interfering with his or her functioning, the suspicion ought to be the child's depressed. Hmm. What is this term anhedonia? You, that, that comes up in the, in the course of this chapter. Anhedonia is a, is a word that's medically defined as an inability to find pleasure in pleasurable things or a loss of interest in things that used to interest you. It's one of the two 
cardinal symptoms of depression. So if one is looking at their teenager who now seems hostile or angry, that probably is sufficient to qualify as a, a bona fide symptom of depression. But it may not show that way. Instead, the teenager may say, my friends are dumb, which means she's lost interest in her friends. Hmm. Or, oh, I'm tired, I don't feel like going to school, which means she's lost interest in going to school. So anhedonia is the other cardinal symptom of depression. Interesting. And 50% of teenagers will manifest it that way. Right. At one point in this chapter, you also mentioned something which could also be incredibly subtle, uh, but it's also the kind of thing that a, that a parent very well might detect. And that is, you say, uh, the failure of speech. In fact, I think you call it maybe one of the most subtle signs of depression. Explain how, how a, a child's speech might change in a way that might possibly be a warning sign about this. Oh, my son Eric was the best example. Uh, he, uh, he got the gift of gab from his mother. My wife is a very, very engaging conversationalist, and you can talk to her for several minutes and think you have known her all of your life. My son is the same way. Uh, all of a sudden, his speech was becoming peppered with filler phrases like, yeah, I know, or sure, sounds good to me. And what he was doing was he couldn't think of anything to say. He even said that. My mind couldn't think of a word to say. But to hide it, he would fill his speech with filler phrases. In fact, William Styron wrote a very poignant account of his own depression, and he said that. He said that he had become wall-eyed, and that when he could speak, all he had was a hoarse murmur. Mm. Wow. You talk also about how, in some cases, we are maybe talking about depression, but depression that might be actually hooked into or related to some other problem. You call them depressions companions. Right. Not always present, I assume, but probably often. 50% of the time in teenagers. Uh, as we had mentioned before, that's one of the differences between uh, teenage depression and adult depression. Teenage depression brings along some, uh, some evil companions, if you wish, much more often than a, adult depression does. Uh, half of the time there is another mental illness associated with the depression. It can antedate the depression. For instance, generalized anxiety disorder, where the teenager is very anxious and worried, oftentimes will, pre will antedate the depression because the stress of the anxiety precipitates the stress-induced disease caused, called depression. Uh, the comorbid condition can follow the depression. Uh, and uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is commonly associated and commonly follows. And so when a, when a diagnosis is made, of depression in a teenager, there's a 50-50 chance there's another mental illness, and you must go hunting for it. It could be obsessive-compulsive disorder. It could be substance abuse. It could be alcoholism. It could be these other things we mentioned. Hmm. The, the unfortunate teenager who's depressed oftentimes is at double jeopardy. Right. Uh, you, you devote an entire chapter to uh, medication, to managing medication, regulating it. Uh, I think we live in a society where we really hope there's a pill on the shelf that can really bring us uh, lasting and meaningful relief. Uh, how would you assess the current situation in terms of what medications can do uh, with a problem like depression, especially among young people? A lot of young people will, who have these mysterious feelings inside of hopelessness and worthlessness feel miserable, and a lot of them who 
take antidepressants wind up smiling and say, I didn't know I didn't have to feel that way. Uh, teenagers themselves admit that it helps their mood. Uh, scientists who study these drugs say that the incidence of teenage suicide has decreased in the past decade. And the reason, one of the main reasons they point to is the increase in the number of prescriptions we've written for antidepressants. And furthermore, the best results in teenage depression are, are achieved with combined therapy, not just cognitive behavioral talking therapy, but medications in addition. So it's quite clear that medications are helpful. Recently, of course, though, there's a question of whether they precipitate suicide or not. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, the FDA has felt it necessary to issue a strong warning. Um, most people believe that the jury is still out on that, but that the warning ought to be heeded. Hmm. You also talk about um, how there is, in addition to medication and therapy, certain strategies that are also beyond those uh, particular parameters, even something like exercise. You tell actually a pretty humorous story about you and your son, Eric, related to uh, your efforts to try to keep him as, as physically fit and active as possible. I, was, I took a tennis in middle life, which means that you were a miserably poor tennis player. But the point of it was he was a good tennis player. And so I needed an excuse to take him out and hit balls or to play a set or two of tennis just because he always said, you know, I feel better. I feel energized. Um, so I became a tennis devotee for several years uh, until I was finally, I think, booed off the court once for being so bad. <laughs> but the point of it is, is that even uh, the scientists have now shown that vigorous exercise actually is as good as antidepressant medications for milder depressions. Of course, there's a pharmacology for this. There are, there are molecules in the human body called endorphins, and these are what are called feel-good molecules. It's the molecules our body make um, to help counteract pain. It seems quite clear that when you have a period of vigorous exercise, immediately at the end of that period, your endorphin levels are higher. And so you create your own endogenous feel-good molecules, and you help combat some of these bad feelings. Hmm. You mentioned the fact that, uh, that Eric is, is now in college uh, and, and doing quite well, but I know that f for whatever, in what, to whatever extent uh, he and you were able to, to, to bring his depression under some control, that there's also always the possibility of recurrence, as I think did occur with, with, with Eric. Exactly. First of all, give us some sense of, of when and to what extent uh, dur during high school uh, Eric's depression was indeed brought under control. Well, you know, it, it took about a good year. He uh, became depressed at the end of his freshman year in high school. Uh, there was a delay, of course, in my recognition of it. There was a delay in getting him to a therapist because of the poor availability of therapists. There's a delay because it takes antidepressants maybe six weeks to, to exert their effect. And then, of course, the most important thing is to talk about these feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness, that they are inappropriate thoughts. And so to counteract something that's so ingrained, uh, it took us about a year. You know, Eric spent every night when he was awake at 3 o'clock in the morning searching for reasons to hate himself. And during the day, of course, I would try to help him find reasons to like himself. That really didn't happen overnight. That took a good mm. year. Wow. The recurrence of his depression, how serious was that? It was mild, thank God. He, uh, he went away to uh, Villanova in Philadelphia. I felt it safe that he could go away to college, and he wanted to try. He was in a very supportive environment. And he came home one summer and said, you know, I think something's not right. 
he was much more astute in recognizing his own depression. I was more astute, and we literally jumped on it. In fact, I, in fact, I have to commend him because he was astute in recognizing the depression of several other people in his dormitory, and he got them to uh, seek professional help. So the point of it is, is that the first episode is a learning experience for everybody. If the parent's intimately involved, uh, they will be a very good student and be alert to the recurrence. Hmm. And like I said, the recurrence rate is 50%, so you better be a good student. I imagine that, that Eric, for Eric and for you, this, this possibility is, is always hanging there, that, that really uh, Absolutely. You, you, are, you remain vigilant and he remains vigilant, uh, that, that this could, could recur. He's still afraid, and I'm still afraid for him. But the point of it is that I've watched him develop problem-solving strategies he didn't have before. I've watched him emo- uh, mature emotionally, perhaps even better than his peers because of this. Uh, I think that he's still afraid, and I am, but I think he knows he can get himself out of it and a lot better than before. Hmm. Did he welcome the writing of this book? Yeah, he even asked me to, to include his story. Really? Yeah. Wow. He said, I learned a lot, Dad. And he did. I even wrote that he got a Ph.D. in self-psychology in a year and a half in high school. He learned a lot about himself. And I think that's why he was happy to pass it along, because uh, he felt that, although it's a stigmatized condition, that you can use it as a time for reflection. Hmm. Well, and you uh, tell us uh, at the very end of the book about the ways in which he and you as a family are stronger, particularly in, in the whole realm of resilience with uh, all that you have uh, uh, gone through together. Many parents pass it along. They felt that they were stronger families. They were very sad that it took an episode of depression, perhaps, to make them more intimate with, e- with each other, but they did do that, and they were at least glad that they developed a family intimacy that perhaps they would, you know, that they would not uh, otherwise develop. Several parents mentioned that they developed a new tolerance for the less than desirable traits in their children because of that. Uh, it was the norm of what these people said. They didn't welcome what happened, but they thought good did not good did indeed come out of it. Hmm. Well, the book certainly has so much to offer, far beyond even what we've managed to talk about today. The book, again, is called Rescuing Your Teenager from Depression, published by Harper Resource, the author, Dr. Norman Berlinger. Dr. Berlinger, I'm grateful to you for writing this book, and I'm uh, glad that we had the chance to talk about it today on The Morning Show. Best wishes to you and to your son. Thank you for saying so, and I appreciate the opportunity. Goodbye now.